0: Well, because uh, most of our men are gone and mostly women, I thought we'd kind of take a break from our study in Second Timothy, and next week we're actually starting a, a study in stewardship and finances, a four- or five-part study in stewardship. So I thought today we'd deviate from our current study and a topical study based on two passages of scripture, um, title of the sermon is Extreme Makeover, CBC, Women's addition. And uh, you know, a lot of just fear and trepidation in my heart. You know, women are scary. I don't know what it is. You know, maybe we're surrounded by men for like two days. and It's kind of shocking to face so many women in a, in a, in a room together. But it's, I don't know, it's much easier preaching to guys than preaching to women. So if you have not been praying for me, pray for me now um, that I would not fear but pre- preach with boldness. Um, I was talking to Joe, we carpooled together to the uh, retreat and he was telling me, uh, they're very curious, both Elaine and Joe, as to what their child would be like. They're curious and they're fearful. They're afraid because Joe's genes are very strong. (laughs) Joe's DNA is strong DNA. So they don't know if it's a boy or a girl. And just they don't know. And I understand what that fear is like. I remember when Seren and I was Seren was first pregnant with Elizabeth, we had no idea. And my fear, really, honestly, I mean, I know who I am. I know, I, I can be honest about myself. And my fear was the child would look like me. <laughs> All right. Like, But Lord, please have the child look like Seren or be like Seren, not like me. And to be honest, that was Seren's fear too. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right, maybe All right, so she's nodding her head. She's shaking. <laughs> but I thought it might have been, right? So well, we have our kids, and we, it's, it's, it's funny to see our children grow up and to our joy and sadness. We see a lot of ourselves in them. Like Elizabeth, we see so much of Serena and Elizabeth. Like Elizabeth is always running everywhere, running up and down the stairs. And Seren tells me how when she was young, her mom would always yell at her for running up and down the stairs, and Elizabeth is doing the exact same thing. My wife has a particular passion for food. I mean, she loves variety of foods. She loves fruits. I mean, she loves vegetables. It took me, like, years to understand that kind of passion for fruit and vegetables. But she just thoroughly enjoys, like, a good watermelon. So if I go to Costco and pick out a good watermelon, she's happy for months. Right? And she, I'm not even joking. Like, months. But if I pick out a bad watermelon, man, like, I just failed as a husband. So I'm like, if you see a guy in Costco doing this... You know, that's, that's me, your pastor, trying to pick out a good watermelon. Well, Elizabeth has that same passion for food, for fruit, for vegetables. Um, you know, Elizabeth loves to sing, has that weird vibrato thing going. And I thought she was like, like making a mockery of praise songs. And I was like telling, almost about to tell her to stop. And Serene's like, no, she's being serious. That's her like earnest attempt to sing these songs. And uh, Serene has that as well, right? <laughs> this passion, right? Our second daughter, Emma, she's kind of the bully of our family, kind of eccentric. She likes to hurt people. I mean, she really does. She's hitting me, and then I go, Emma, it hurts. And she says, well, I just want to hurt you. (laughs) She wants to hurt me. And when you tell her it hurts, she tries harder. I mean, she really does. So she's a lot like like my mom, right? (laughs) She is. Not like me or Saran. Like we look at her and she's just weird, she's eccentric, very quirky, kind of like a real, like a gangster in her. <laughs> and it's just like my mom. It's funny. And then our third Eleanor. I think Nolan said it best. We were over at the Hans home two months ago and Sophie, you went upstairs to do something and Nolan was there watching Eleanor with Sarin now sitting there. And Nolan turns to Sarin and says, the story, her face looks like his face. <laughs> Eleanor's face looks like Pastor James's face. So externally, I guess she has my features. All right, so we we talk about, we we laugh at this, how our traits, physical traits, personality traits, character traits are passed down from parents to children and our children to our, our grandchildren. On and on it goes. Now, take a step back from looking at the traits of individual people, individuals, and Let's take a broader view of traits that are generally found among men and women. And I'm just, I'm just not Bible here. This is observation. This is uh, just kind of like data gathering. This is just purely by anecdotal evidence. What traits are common in women and what traits are common in men? I think for the men, some common traits that we see, I mean, I see my own life, I see in the men, that I'm friends with, men that I'm ministering to. Some common traits are just their passivity. They're spiritually passive. They lack confidence. They lack intensity in their lives. They lack intensity in their spiritual lives. Uh, They're easily distracted. They pursue pleasure. They pursue sleep. They enjoy their beds. They enjoy all the worst foods, right? And uh, they avoid hygiene if they can, or they try to as long as they can. Um, they fail often, far too often, to lead the family spiritually, lead the church. I was talking to a guy at 24, a guy I knew from way back. He was telling me how he was a successful businessman. Uh, he owned a Ferrari. He's opening some Japanese restaurants at that restaurant row and, and um in West, uh, West L.A., and it was just boasting. And we're talking about his family. He was confessing to me how he is just tanking it as a husband. He's just failing utterly as a husband. His wife's pregnant, and he's afraid. Here's a guy successful at work, successful in the world, but at home, leading his wife, leading his future child, he's afraid. And I understand that because that's so common among men. Men are generally very passionate about the things that really do not matter. They're passionate about Rocky 3 and 4 being better than Rockies 1 and 2. There's so much controversy about that. I made a little mention of that. And I got like emails and like, you know, the guys left and right arguing with me. They're passionate about Lakers and Utah Jazz and the Hawks and Boston. They're passionate about all these things that are just pointless. And yet the things that really do matter, they are... They are silent. They're invisible. They want to be anonymous. They want to be... They, want, they don't want to stand up. They want to be... Uh, they are apathetic. I think J.C. Riles' book, Thoughts for Young Men, I think confirmed this. Um, it's, it's a, it's a uh, book by a pastor, elder pastor. It's free online. And he bemoans the fact of how so many men are still like boys, they have all the worst traits of boys. And they don't grow up to be men who are responsible or passionate for the right things. Now, on the other hand, what are the general characteristics of women? And so please don't get angry. All right, please don't throw things. I'm just being general, very, right? From what I heard people say, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what I've, what I've heard, that women are very like diligent and disciplined They're very conscientious. They're very um, considerate of others. And they do the right thing. And so they are easily deceived by these things. And so they are full of pride. Full of being judgmental. Full of uh, hypocrisy. They're very strong. Very independent. They're very um, inwardly, attitudinally arrogant and uh, self-righteous, right? I think um, the parable of the older son and younger son, you know, some some parallel, maybe men and women. The the guy is the prodigal son. He goes and does dumb things, shames his family and loses all the money and comes back destitute. the, The woman, though, is the one who's working hard, is at home, looks righteous. But it's revealed that Righteousness is all external, really, internally. It's full of all these pride, and rebellion, unruliness, self-confidence, self-righteousness, fiercely being independent. We've got to ask ourselves, well, where did men get this from, this passivity? Where did women get this trait of being independent, rebellious from? And we go, oh yeah, my mom's like that. Man, my mom was out of control. And, you know, my mom, nobody could tell her what to do. She had her own opinions. You know, my dad, he couldn't stand up to her. She she wore the pants. And then, oh yeah, my grandmother was like that, right? Or my my dad was passive. Like, he just read the newspaper, you know. One of my, one of my guys at our church told me, in all his life, he never had one talk with his dad. In his whole life. They never ate together one-on-one. And they never had, like, a heart-to-heart talk with his dad, right? Oh, my dad was like that. That's why I'm passive. Oh, my grandfather, right? But well, we've got to go further than that, further than our great-grandparents. we got to go all the way back to Adam and Eve. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we find these traits, women being strong and men being passive, in the first man and the first woman. Genesis chapter 3. Now, just a brief review. And we know this from Sunday school stories. Adam was created by God. an the image, image of God. He was given authority to have dominion over all the earth. He was given the power and the right to exercise authority over all creation as God's representative. I mean, that's incredible power. That's incredible authority. You aren't representing a nation. You aren't representing an organization. You are a herald ambassador of God over the earth. And so when God gave him responsibilities, when God gave him work to do, he went at it with all his might. So when God gave Adam the power to, and the work to name the animals, he was very diligent. He was very uh, vigilant to do that work. He exercised his authority with much confidence, freedom, and grace. Adam was a good guy. And then what happened? Along came Eve. Eve was born. Eve was different. She wasn't like Fido, right? She wasn't an animal. She was created by, with his rib, alongside of him. She was his equal. She was also created in God's image. She also bore the image of God. They are to be partners in governing all creation. Though she were to submit, and he was, he was to, to, to lead and, and, and serve her, they were to serve together, serve God together. All of a sudden, we see a slight but significant change in Adam. He was a passionate ruler over the earth. Leading with strength and confidence. But now with Eve, we see and immediately sense his inertness, trepidation, apprehension, certainly a lack of confidence. We see the full blossoming of these things in Genesis 3. Where Adam is here. Like In Genesis 3, Adam is here, but we don't see him. He is invisible. We think it's just serpent and Eve talking. But we find out in verse seven that Adam was there, right so you, you go to a par- you, know, you go to a meeting or a party, and somebody's not mentioned, and he, well, I had no idea he was there, I had no idea she was there, oh yeah, she was there, but she was just holding up the wall, you know he was there just drinking punch, so we had no idea he was even there, or same thing with adam right he was here, but because he was so it was, the silence was deafening. It was so quiet, so passive, so invisible. His name is not mentioned until it's all over. We know this story, right? Chapter three verse one the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord has made. And what does he do? He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Here is the serpent. Before her, before her husband, he undermines God's Word, right? He is here to deceive her, subvert her faith, lead her astray, and so he knows the weak link is her, So, because he, God gave Adam the command, and it was Adam's job to give her the command, and so he attacked her, and where is Adam? Adam is just, I don't know, he's probably watching ESPN, I don't know, what's he doing? He's following the baseball scores. He's not involved, he's not concerned. So what does Adam, Eve do. She's responding. Verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see how she adds to the command? That's not what God commanded. God's command was specific. Do not eat. Nothing about touching. And That's a, that's a safe thing to do, but we're not to add to God's word or take away from God's word. But here she is, she's already being led astray serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He blasphemes God here. He speaks evil of God. He, he assigns um, insecurity, duplicity. He assigns malice in God, fear in God. The reason God doesn't want you to eat, because He's afraid of you. Because you eat of this fruit, you'll be just like God. Do you see this parallel of so many men today where men are silent and things that matter? And then the same parallel with women. Here is Eve. She is the one talking. She's the one debating, arguing, contemplating. She's the one planning. She's the one deciding. She's the one who's doing. She's the one who's active. And Adam is he's he's observing. You know, he's he's st- thinking, I, I guess he's thinking, he's silent, he's invisible, he is, he's got his hands folded standing behind Eve. All right. So she's leading and Adam is following. Right. He was God's ambassador, God's representative. He, it was his responsibility to speak for God and to enforce his commands. It was his work to uphold God's word and God's honor. It was his job to protect his wife from temptation and sin. He failed. He was silent. A little conjecture here. I got to think, when Adam was talking about the animals, he wasn't silent. Right? You know, when he was talking about work, talking about all the animals, all the plants, all the trees. All the fruit and vegetables that were in the land, he was very just, you know, he knew it all. He was an expert. Right, a lot of guys are talking about work or frivolous things, man. They're so passionate, you know, comes to spiritual things. They're invisible. I think we get it from from Adam. So, what does Eve do? All right, verse six. She asserts her independence from her husband and from her God. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. let stop right there. I don't want to belabor this point. I said it in other times when we were starting through Genesis 3. But the sin was not her eating the apple. The sin was her asserting her, her independence in her mind from God's Word. She didn't submit her mind to God's Word, saying, we shall not eat it. It is not good. No, she thought for herself. I'm going to evaluate. I'm going to judge. I'm going to ascertain for myself this fruit. And she said, it's desirable. It's good. It looks, looks desirable to the eyes. It is good for gaining wisdom. And at that moment, sin entered the world. Because she placed herself, her own mind, above God's word. Does that make sense? All right? You no, know, she was judging God's word. She was saying in her mind, God's wrong. God said it's bad. No, it's good. God said it's gonna cause me to die. He's he's out of it. He's foolish. He's insecure. He's being sinful. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. At that point in her mind, when she judged God's word and said it was wrong, sin into the world, the eating of it was the fruit of her sins. So anytime we come to the Bible and we judge the scriptures, right, that's sin. When we don't judge the Bible. The Bible judges us. Anytime we contradict the Bible in our hearts and our thoughts and our deeds and our actions, that's the essence of sin. It's not you know, the things we do. The things we do are the fruit of our doctrine, of our mindset, of our perspective, worldview—that's within already enmity in our minds against God. Here she is doing all of these things on her own, asserting her independence, and sitting before God and sitting before Adam. And what does she do? She eats and she gives some to her husband. Adam's like, okay, you know, I'll take some, and he follows her, right? He. Disobeys God. You see the reverse in order, right? He totally surrenders his God-given privilege and responsibility, and he follows her into sin. Now, uh, the p- purpose of our sermon is not to study Genesis three. The purpose of our sermon is how it relates to women. So God gives uh, God gives curse to the serpent, curse to the man. And go down to uh, verse 16. Here is God's curse to women. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain we shall bring forth children. That's a twofold fold increase. Right? There is pain in carrying the child, and pain in producing the child, and pain from that child. That child will bring you pain. In, in, in Eden, because there was no sin in the world, Parents, can you think about it? You have children, and they were obedient. You know, and you have children, and like they didn't have temper tantrums. They always said yes, and they obeyed, and they loved you, and they cleaned up their mess, and they ate, and they didn't spill any food, and they didn't break anything in the house. Can you believe it? Like, there was no pain in raising their children. They were, like, they were sinless children, right? Not anymore. That's why we have our children today. And we deal with all their sinfulness and we blame Eve, right? That's the first curse. Second curse is your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Right? Your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. And that's why, guys, we need to be good to our women, we need to be good to our wives. Because suffering, we talked about this a few weeks, is common to all men. So all people suffer lowercase s u f f e r. Women suffer capital S, capital U-f-f-e-r. They have a unique category of suffering. Because men, we suffer, but they suffer because of us. They suffer because of their husbands or also their fathers or other men, and they suffer because of their children in a specific way, in a unique way, they carry the burden of added suffering. It's a consequence of sin. For the man, the curse is is the sphere of our work. For women, the curse is in the sphere of her life. In her relationship with her children and with her husband. So Women, if you're somewhat surprised that you have trouble trouble with your children uh, and trouble with your husband, uh, don't be surprised. Because that's the consequence of sin. That's not what God intended for you and your husband. God intended for your husband to, to love you, to understand you, to care for you, to be sympathetic, to listen to you. That's how God designed husbands, to listen to you. But sin to the world, so we don't listen anymore. Right? We try to care, but we don't know how to care. Try to understand, we don't understand, we just don't. All right, blame sin. Right? <laughs> children as well. You love you love your children, you want the best, you wake up early, stay up late, worrying about them, and they'll give you much joy, but they also give you just so much heartache, so much pain, and so much suffering because of sin. The curse on the woman falls into two areas. Two areas that define a woman's life in the world. Two areas from which women in general cannot escape. The curse is not housework, it's not laundry, it's not cooking. The curse is the sorrows related to the very place where a woman seeks her highest joy, her husband and her children. It is in those areas that God speaks His judgment focus on um, the husband. Your desire shall be for your husband. The parallel is, uh, that word is used again in Genesis 4-7. How God told Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and sin's desire is for you. Sin seeks to master you, rule you, dominate you, control you. So God said to Eve, Eve, you had this non-sinful strength this independence, this desire to rule. And because of that, you sin. Therefore, I'm going to give you over to your sin. I'm going to increase that desire. You'll have this innate longing to rule men, to control men, dominate, to lead your husbands. You want to wear the pants. You want to squeeze him. You want to make him a shallow man. You want to make him invisible. You want to make him into a boy and keep him as a boy and you want to lead the family and you have this desire in you. That's God's curse. All right. All right. Your desire will be for your husband. Instead of your desire not to submit, in fact, in your heart, you'll rage against that and you'll want him to submit to you. All right. You'll want to lead. Right. But the other side is, but, He shall rule over you. He shall rule over you. Instead, though, Adam was the servant leader, caring, compassionate, God-fearing man, but because of sin, he's not going to be a compassionate man. He's not going to be a good, humble, understanding, empathetic husband. In fact, he's going to be Cruel, right? He's going to be cold. He's going to be selfish. He's going to be prideful. He's going to love himself more than loving you. He's going to be a despot. He's going to rule over you. In that instant, when they ate the fruit, the relationship changed and she saw Adam change before her eyes. You know, like Beauty and the Beast, right? After they fall in love, the beauty becomes this handsome prince. But after that fruit, she saw her handsome prince turn into this beast, right? this cruel, uncaring man, and that's why, like, you know, the fruit of Adam and Eve is Cain and Abel, right? Like, like fathers, like sons. Right? where did this hatred between these two boys? Where did that come from? Where Cain murders Abel? Right? They saw this distance, this coldness in their dad, and that affected the, fa- affected the family, affected the sons. So immediately that curse was seen in her relationship with her husband and in his character, in his personality. When sin came into the world, there was enmity between serpent and the woman, between man and the ground, and enmity was placed between the wife and the husband. Wife and the husband. The woman would desire to control the man and the man will desire to control his wife. And here is the battle of the sexes that began in Genesis 3 and continues to this day. As Christians, we have been saved by Christ. We have been redeemed from sin and the curse of sin. But in our unredeemed part of our flesh, part of our, our body, sin remains. And that battle continues. Where men do not want to lead and women want to control. In lot of the gospel, women, how are you to respond to your husbands who fail to lead? How are you to respond to your dad who is not respectable? How are you to respond to your boss, your manager, your employer, older brother, church leader, Bible study leader, who's not doing well, who's not leading ably? We find the answer in another chapter 3 in the New Testament. The answer to Genesis 3 is found in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, extreme makeover. 1 Peter 3 talking about wives that are married to unbelieving husbands. Even them, the wife is to submit. Even them, the wife is to follow. Because definitely, an unbelieving husband cannot spiritually lead her, shepherd her, teach her the word of God. So it's a response. Not just for that, but the application is, if you're married to a husband, he's a believer and he's not leading, this goes for you as well. Now, verse 3 was always um, you know, a confusing verse for me. In the midst of wives submitting to husbands, in the midst of gentle and quiet spirit and, and, and submission and the issue of respect and honor, why is there verse 3 about adorning externally? Why is there this verse about braiding of hair, wearing of gold, and putting on of clothing? Why is that there? I am not sure, but this is what I think might possibly be the case. I think women have a better like, insight into this. And I think when women struggle at home, when they are dissatisfied with their husbands, and they're not leading, and their, their children are giving them difficulty and, and, and strife and pain, the temptation is not to run to, it ought to be to run to Christ. But the temptation is to go to retail therapy. Uh, to go to the salon and to go shopping and buy a new dress. I feel, man, I'm angry at my husband. I'm going to go buy a dress, right? Man, he, he upset me so much. I'm going to highlight my hair, right? I'm going to get a new braid. Is that true? What do you think? Does that fit? Right? I'm going to buy some jewelry. I get, some, I get yeses and nos. So you can talk about it maybe, maybe later. Where well, women, instead of the hidden person of the heart running to Christ, they seek solace and answer in external beauty. And they pursue after beauty, hoping that that will give them satisfaction, fulfillment, and happiness for their internal pain. And Peter is saying, that's fleeting. This functional savior of external beauty is fleeting. And it's not, it won't give you ultimate joy and happiness. You need to run to Christ. And what Christ has for you, what Christ desires for you. That's why he says in verse 3, do not let your adorning be merely external. He's not prohibiting categorically um, uh, clothing and makeup, jewelry and doing of hair. Not at all. Uh, The force is relative, not absolute. Absolute. In John 6:27, Christ said, Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. He was not categorically prohibiting working for food. He was saying, Do not just work for food that spoils, but also, in a higher priority, work for food that leads to eternal life, which is Christ Himself. That's what Peter is saying. Do not let your adorning be merely external. Adorn is the Greek word, kosmea, from where from where we get the word cosmetics, right? has to do with how a woman prepares herself. Do not just focus on externals, the braiding of hair, wearing of gold, putting on of fine clothing, right. fine expensive dresses. Do not merely focus on these things. Peter says, when you... In a marriage, your husband is not doing well, he's passive, he's inert, he's excited about all the wrong things, and when you need him the most, he's not stepping up to the plate and laying down his himself for you, caring for you, protecting you, shepherding you. Instead, adorn the hidden person of the heart. Isn't that beautiful? It's a stark contrast to the external, visible, and conspicuous ornaments that have just been mentioned by Peter. He said, focus on the inner person. That's hidden. The regenerated nature. That is not flaunted before the world. in glimpses to a few. Seen only in fullness by God. 1 Samuel sixteen seven. God does not look at what man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Knowing that God looks at the heart, don't be husband-centered. Don't be child-centered. Be God-centered. Adorn your heart. And what do you adorn your heart with? These four things. The first one is be gentle. A gentle spirit. Gentle spirit. It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.23 Gentleness. The word translated can be translated as mild, soft, meek. It describes an attitude, a way of responding, of calmness, of humility, of humble submission. The opposite is harsh, defiant, unruly. Antagonistic. Gentle spirit is soft, mild, meek, and humble. Don't be forceful, self willed, selfishly assertive. Don't be pushy. But Ephesians 4 2 says be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. That's the first thing you ought to adorn, pursuing after this gentle spirit, this meek, humble spirit. Second is a quiet spirit, quiet spirit, having a quiet disposition. It is contrasted to a nosy, uh, noisy, boisterous attitude. It is, as one writer said, is a spirit. Which calmly bears the disturbances created by others and which itself does not create disturbances. It is contrasted to an anxious disposition where someone is always prone to overreacting, right? always um, drama filled, always anxious, always a warrior. Full of fear and anxiety, always thinking of the worst, easily alarmed and faith is easily shaken. That is not a quiet spirit. Right. Instead, to be a quiet spirit. Right. Two more. Verse one is respect, respectful. Verse two, right. the gentle and quiet spirit is down ladder, but. Earlier on, Paul, Peter talks about having a respectful spirit. He's talking about heart attitude here. Heart attitude, internal spirit. I think women really wrestle with this. I see this in our daughters. Ethan, when he sins, he'll throw things, tantrum, yell, scream, shout. He's boisterous. And he'll let his heart be known. So I I can read Ethan. Serena can read a mile away, so we can read Ethan uh, ten miles away. The crows are much more cunning. They're smarter, they're wiser, they're more subtle in their disrespect and dishonoring towards towards us. Externally they'll do the right things. Because they don't want to get disciplined, they don't want timeouts, they don't want all these things, they want their food, right? They want their fruits and vegetables. But you could tell with the rolling of their eyes tone of their voices, like right, the subtle facial expressions, that they're angry, they're upset, that they don't agree, that they want their way. Peter is saying in your heart, respect your husbands from your heart. And the illustration that he gives later is how Abraham called Sarah called Abraham Lord, right? so you look at the book of Genesis and you, you, you do a study. When did Sarah ever call Abraham Lord? She never said that with her, with her mouth. That happened in Genesis 18.12. When God told Abraham you will give book, uh, birth to a son, you will have a son, Sarah in her heart laughed. At this age, I'm going to have a son? My master is going to have a son with, th- with me? And in her heart, she called him after all those years of seeing him lying, making all these mistakes, him being a coward, and running away from all these things, and disobeying God. Even though she was an aged woman, she called her husband not idiot, that fool, that dummy. You, you know why? You know what you call your husbands in your heart. Right? She didn't say those words. She said, my master, my Lord. She respected her husband in her heart. And that is what Peter is saying. Right? You adorn the inner person with a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit, and towards your husband, you have a heart of respect. Right? Barbara Hughes, wife of R. Kent Hughes, she said this, My deepest regrets in my life are for the times when I failed the Lord by not being a, respect, a respectful and submissive helper to my husband, my greatest joys have been the direct result of living in accordance with God's plan for me as a woman and as a wife. My deepest regrets have been in my heart right when I've been disrespectful towards my husband. She, she continues. 25 years ago, I asked myself, what is my goal as a wife? What is my goal? What I decided that day remains the same today. One day, I want to hear God say to my husband, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, period. She wants to hear God praise her husband. She's not, oh, what about me, right? I've outdone him. Where's my praise? Her heart is, I want to hear God say to my husband, well done, good and faithful servant. As Kent's helper in this life, she said, those words will be my joy. And that's a pursuit of respecting your husband. That's a third thing you need to adorn in the hidden person of the heart. And final one is a pure conduct holiness, purity, righteousness. Not using your husband's passivity and sinfulness as an allowance for you to sin. Wow, he sinned against me. Okay, now I've been so hurt. I've been so offended. Now I have moral high ground to sin against him. I have moral high ground now to splurge and spend money I have more high ground to do what I want to do and pursue my dreams and my ambitions because nobody's looking out for me. God, the wife responds to a husband that doesn't care, a father that's not serving you, the children that do not care by pursuing purity, pursuing holiness, righteousness, doing the right thing in heart, attitude, and also in action the direct benefits, the direct rewards of this, is first of all, is it is precious in God's sight. That is beautiful in the sight of God. The world prizes costly clothing and gold jewelry and nice hair, maybe a nice figure and a nice face. But a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit, a woman who is respectful to her husband, sinned against, but responds in holiness, is precious in the sight of God. God does not care what you wear. He's not impressed by the externals, not the least. He looks at what a man cannot look at. Such women, no matter what the world might say, God says, He says it is precious. You are beautiful. You are very precious in God's sight. And added to that, it's imperishable. It is imperishable. And so, all of us, we get older, and um, I'm getting gray hair. I I mean, we're all getting a little larger every year. You can't fight time. All of us, in the world's standard of beauty, it's going away. But beauty in God's sight is imperishable. It is, can't be destroyed. It is eternal. So instead of being husband centered, instead of being child centered, you're not satisfied by family. That is part of the curse. It's part of because of sin. So don't be husband centered, child centered, or family centered. Be God centered. And seek to be beautiful in the sight of God, which is imperishable, by having a gentle and quiet spirit, respecting your husband returning good for any evil that He gives to you. Right. So just a couple of final thoughts, closing thoughts for us. We are um, we're hammering the men at the men's retreat. I mean, Marcus gave a great sermon on Friday night, just, just rebuking, making the husband's men uncomfortable. Right? Bob, yesterday with tears, rebuked the men. I'm sure Dan is in the same thing this morning. So they're doing their work. Now we need to do our work. You need to do your work. I want to ask you are you pursuing a gentle and quiet spirit? Or are you pursuing external beauty? Are you trying to influence men by how you look externally? Or are you trying to influence your husband or other men by your inner beauty? Right? Are you trying to influence them by your gentle spirit, by your quiet spirit? Your internal monologue. What, what, is, what, is, what, are some, what is going on there? What, are, what, are being, what is being said in your heart toward your husband? And you're thinking, well, I never say these things, so it's okay. He has no idea. Right? He's clueless to what I really think about all these things. He might be clueless, but God isn't. God knows your heart. God hears full well your internal monologue, what you're saying in your own hearts. Are you being respectful toward your husband, genuinely honoring him, esteeming him? Are you pure in your conduct, in your response toward your husband? right. Ask yourself these questions. And let me portion out the single women to close our time. You're not married, but there are men in your life that you are called to serve and help. Be it your fathers, your brothers, or brothers in Christ, in the church. Are you seeking to help yourself? And are you looking down on these men or are you sincerely seeking to have a gentle and quiet spirit to be respectful towards them albeit often undeserved? Are you seeking to respect them and to have a pure conduct toward them? Carolyn Mahaney said this to single women, in all our relationships with men we should be making room to practice servant leadership. I especially encourage single women to ask the Lord to give them creative ways to inspire men to lead. Granted, this is not always easy. And I am not promising, she said, that all men will automatically lead. What matters is that you are cultivating the habit of making room for the leadership of men in your life of the men in your life. There are men in your life that the Lord has provided in this season to be fathers, elders, church leaders, friends, and they need to know that you incline toward them instead of resisting them in a stiff-necked posture of the heart. You encourage their godly leadership when you seek their counsel before making your own decisions. You encourage the God leaders, I would say, by respecting them, by loving them, by praying for them, and by encouraging them. Right. I mean, I saw so much of who I am as a leader because of my wife. Right. I've made so many like humiliating mistakes as a husband, as a father, but because of her love for Christ, she has respected me, though undeservedly, she has been pure towards me undeservedly. And that has helped me to lead in the home, to have confidence to lead the family. As a pastor, I've just dropped the ball so, too many times to count. But the women of our church have been an encouragement to me. Helped me lead. Gave me room to lead. Allow me to make mistakes and try again. And it's given me confidence to continue to lead. I exhort you, To do that, to single men, grant them, give them room to lead, defer to them, and honor them, and follow them. Carolyn Mahaney offers some questions. Single women should ask themselves, does this help my parents on earth and my spiritual fathers in the church? What I'm about to do, my course of action, Will it help my parents? Will it help church leaders? Ask yourself, how does this help them? Women should be other-centered and leader-centered. Do I care for my home in a way that helps my parents or serves me? Do I care for my home in a way that helps my parents or just serves me? Do I manage my time in a manner that assists my parents Or serves my agenda? Am I being a helper? Or is time just for me? Does the way I serve others support my spiritual parents in the church? Or am I just promoting myself? Am I serving to support my spiritual leaders in the church? Or am I just promoting myself? Two more questions. Do I ask for my physical parents and spiritual parents' input before making major decisions? Or do I assert my independence? I don't care what my parents think. I don't care what the elders think. I don't care what my leaders think. This is what I think. It's desirable for me. It's, It's what I want. It's what I want to do. Therefore, you decide and you act. Or are you submitted to your physical parents' To your leaders in your church? And finally, am I oriented to my spiritual parents and the work to which God has called them? Am I oriented? Is right, my reference point in my heart to my spiritual parents in the church and the work to which God has called them and called the church. Things to consider as you pursue after being gentle, have a gentle and quiet spirit, being respectful and pure to your husbands, to your leaders. Father, we thank you and praise you. Father, we are uh, thankful for the cross, for you have delivered us from sin and the curse of sin. Without the gospel, our women, our wives would hate us, would Rightfully, because of our passivity and sinfulness, rebel and and rebel and live independent lives full of pride and self-righteousness. And instead of building up our families and building up your church with their own hands, like the foolish woman in Proverbs, they'll be tearing families down, destroying the church. We are saved from all these things that the world is experiencing only because of grace in the gospel of Christ. It is not because of our righteousness at all. It is simply because you had mercy on us and you saved us by the gospel that we have been set free from the curse of the law and granted this opportunity to obey your commands so that we might enjoy the sweetness of having families husband and wives and children being rooted in the gospel, enjoy the sweetness of obeying you and all the sweet fruits that follow. We pray, O oh God, that uh, you would help us to see beyond um, our own desires and our own hurts and to see the gospel. And that will motivate us to stay, uh, to, do, to be beautiful in your eyes, to be pleasing to you.